You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Welcome back to Cutaneous Miscellaneous. I had an interesting day in clinic. I diagnosed a tennis player with golfer's vasculitis and a golfer with tennis elbow. It's never a dull moment in dermatology clinic. So last episode, we discussed finding and interviewing for your first job after dermatology residency with Dr. Jen Parker, who had just interviewed and accepted her first job after residency. But what if you don't want to interview for a job and you just want to create one yourself? You're probably wondering how to do that. Well, you're in luck because on this episode, we're talking about how to start a private practice in dermatology and nobody better to discuss this with than Dr. Michael Cameron, who just started his own private practice. So Dr. Cameron, so pumped to have you here. Welcome and how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm excited to be here. Great. So nice to have you here. We're going to talk about how to start a private practice, which everybody wants to know about. Medical students, residents, fellows, early career dermatologists, and even late career dermatologists who want to make a switch. This is a topic that everybody wants to hear about. But first, we want to do some practical tips and some board review for the residents. And Michael, I don't want to tick you off because somebody told me you don't know jack about Janus kinase inhibitors, but I know they were lying because you are a jack of all trades when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> Very well, very good, very good. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm pretty passionate about jack inhibitors, um, and I think I come at it from a, a unique perspective because I used to work in it for the, a pharmaceutical company and and, and worked on drug development uh, for abrasitinib and ritlisitinib uh, from Pfizer, and then I went back to the other side, left the dark side, and I'm back in the clinic, and have been using a ton of jack inhibitors um, and publishing on that. And yeah, I just think they're really misunderstood. And so I'm pretty passionate about this. I think that, um, you know, I, I published an op-ed in the dermatologist a couple of months ago. That was the cover article for the dermatologist where I kind of lay out my thesis for why they're misunderstood and, and, you know, how we should really be thinking about JAK inhibitors. And so I think it, the, the data speaks for itself. If you look at the Acuvia data, um, Rinvoke is actually more commonly prescribed than Depixent now in Canada. And so as of like a month ago, uh, Rinvoke had 54% of new scripts for atopic dermatitis and, and Depixent had 46. And so, and, and in the United States, it's like Rinvoke has like 8% or 10%. I can't really remember the number. And so clearly there's a, there's a different kind of thought process going towards Janus kinase inhibition in Canada, as well as Europe and Japan for that matter, compared to the United States. And a lot of that's driven by the boxed warning, uh, which we can certainly dive into if you want, Nick, and, and, our, and our interpretation of, of the, the data that led to that box warning. Yeah, I definitely want to hear about that. You know, as a dermatology resident, new resident, my resident colleagues are definitely a little bit nervous about jack inhibitors with the black box warning, with some of the monitoring that goes with them, but the really incredible medications which are revolutionizing dermatology. So can you give me and the residents just some tips or some practical tips on safety or how to talk to patients about these scary black box warnings? Sure. So I think um, the first thing to say is that obviously immunosuppression exists on a spectrum, right? And so uh, a chemotherapy is a more immunosuppressive than methotrexate, which is more immunosuppressive than a JAK inhibitor, which is more immunosuppressive than Humira, which is more immunosuppressive than Skyrizi, which is more immunosuppressive than water, right? And so like, it's all, it's all relative in terms of immunosuppression. And so that's the first thing to say. And so um, it, it, that's all relative to each other. And so then the next question is, where did the box warning language come from? Because before the box warning, 
Zeljans was being written all the time and no one was even thinking about it really. And so essentially, I encourage everyone to first read my op-ed. I got to give a shameless plug for my op-ed, but like I would encourage you to go to the source of the box warning. And so uh, the, the Zeljans trial called Oral Surveillance, which was a post-marketing safety study, it was actually the largest rheumatoid arthritis interventional study ever done. And so we're talking about thousands and thousands of patients. It was a seven-year study. And it was a study that was sort of, in my opinion, and this is clearly me editorializing, but in my opinion, it was sort of designed to fail. And so basically, it was enriched with very high-risk patients. And so the FDA designed the study, and they made Pfizer run it post-marketing. And to be in the study, you had to be over the age of 50. You had to have at least one cardiovascular risk factor. Um, about half of patients were smokers. A lot of them had, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things like that. So they had to have at least one cardiovascular risk factor, although many had more. They these people had poorly controlled RA, so they were all on methotrexate. So not only were they on Zeljans, but they're on methotrexate as well. And then sixty percent of them, if you look at the data, were on chronic prednisone. And so imagine a, a imagine a typical patient profile is a sixty a sixty year old. That's a smoker, they're on Zeljans, they're on methotrexate, and they're on chronic prednisone. And so that's clearly a that's clearly a different patient than like your 20-year-old with alopecia areata that's tired of Kenalog injections. And so clearly a different patient. And then to throw the cherry on top, it's not like the FDA was like, okay, let's just see how these patients do. They made a study where it was a non-inferiority trial where the comparator arm was a drug that is cardioprotective in NRA, and we know that, and that's Humira. And so they basically said, let's see how you do against Humira. We need to make sure that you are equivalent to Humira in terms of numbers of safety events. And so we know Humira is cardioprotective. And so one of the primary endpoints was MACE events or major cardiovascular events. And not surprisingly, Zeljan's was not able to reach the threshold of non-inferiority. And it actually was pretty close. They almost did. Um, and so that was for the the cardiovascular events. And then the, uh, the second primary endpoint was um, rates of malignancies. And so when the trial was being designed, they were actually looking for lymphomas because that's a lot of times what we're worried about here. But although there was a slightly higher numerical rate of lymphomas, what actually drove the malignancy signal, which again did not meet the threshold for non-inferiority, was lung cancers. Um, and in, in subsequent post hoc analysis, and, and, and people say the term post hoc analysis, and they're, you know, is that meaningful? Well, I, I consider a post hoc analysis on the largest RA trial ever designed to still be meaningful. Um, when they did a post hoc analysis where they removed smokers, they actually didn't see a lung cancer signal. And it actually, the, the malignancy signal evaporated. And so for me, one of the first questions I asked my potential jack inhibitor patients is, you know, are you an active smoker or did you have a smoking history and things of that nature? And so I think to, you know, that's, that's a lot of words. That's a lot of stuff I just dropped, but I think that the, the take-home message is, look, jack inhibitors are actually quite safe when used um, in a patient that's not high risk. And so your, your typical atopic dermatitis patient, your typical depixin failure, your typical alopecia areata patient, uh, patient, they're quite safe. And I have, I'm approaching a hundred patients now that I have on Jack Nibbers in the real world. And I have not had a single serious adverse event. I've had 
like a little bit of acne a, a few cases. I've had things like that, but I'm not seeing serious infections. I'm not seeing cytopenias or lab changes. And so I think that tells me that the Canadians are onto something here and that these medications can be used quite, a, quite effectively and safely when, when used with the right patients. That was beautifully stated. Um, you know, again, we know JAK inhibitors work so well, but I think everyone's very nervous about the side effects in the black box. But what you said there was just so eloquently stated. I think I'm going to take this advice and talk to my patients tomorrow and just be so much more well-informed and have such a better conversation. And one more quick question, Dr. Cameron. I know these drugs are new. The monitoring is new. The indications are new. So if you were writing board exam questions, what kind of stuff would you focus on? Just give me a couple of uh, thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think... Um Looking back at my board exam, I remember that there was the, the hardest questions were the the new studies. So they loved to pull from like the JAD or, or, or the journals on new studies and, and, and new data and things like that. And so I would not be shocked if they pulled from oral surveillance. I mean, it's such an impactful study. And so I think you need to be well-versed in tofacitinib and the oral surveillance study. And so even if it's not in the boards, you should read the New England Journal abstract. I mean, it takes... 10 minutes and it was published in the New England Journal about a year ago. So anything related to oral surveillance and you know what were the co-primary endpoints in the tofacitinib safety study or uh, what what was what was this trial design? It was a non-inferiority trial. Things like that are I could easily see be board fodder. Um, things like you know what are our approved indications for atopic term, or for for jack inhibitors, and that would be you know topically with vitiligo we have topical ruxolitinib, and then we have atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata for oral jack inhibitors. I could see that. I could see um, jack stat pathway questions, and so which cytokines signal through which jack pairs. I could see as like a basic science question. You know, knowing that all of the hematopoietic cytokines signal through a JAK2 homodimer, so two JAK2 proteins. And so your erythropoietin, your thrombopoietin, things like that, growth factor hormone, that I could see being an easy question. Just the fact on a very basic level that JAK proteins are intracellular, and so you can't deliver a biologic to affect a JAK. And so JAKs are not biologics. I mean, I see this mis say, quoted uh, incorrectly all the time. And so Jack, Jack is a small molecule, no different than aspirin. And so it's delivered uh, orally for that reason, and it, and it crosses through the cell membrane. And so what is the point of action of a Jack inhibitor? It's um, on the intracellular membrane, um, and it's an ATP kinase reuptake inhibitor, a competitive inhibitor of that. And so those are the kinds of things I could, I could see as board's questions. So. Yep. A lot of material there. A lot of questions about this new, exciting uh, area of pharmacology. So everyone who's done with this podcast should start to study that because there's a lot. And I know some of you are confused and I want to help all of my colleagues out and all the residents. And I want to just quickly introduce and plug the Del Rosso, Armstrong, Lebwall, Brownstone, Jack 1 through 3, and Tick 2 inhibitors and dermatology quick reference sheet. It has the generic name, brand name, FDA-approved indications, derm dosing, monitoring, and clinical considerations for all the systemic and topical jacks, and we're certainly going to link that in the show notes. So, jack inhibitors are awesome. Um, they're revolutionary dermatology now, and they're going to continue to revolutionize the field um, as they start to treat more diseases, which we not had therapies for in the past. So, awesome. Dr. Cameron, now let's talk about the main part of the episode, starting a private practice. You just did one. I want you to tell me and the rest of the residents and everyone listening how to do that. And the first question I have for you is, where do you open it up? What are the considerations for location and physical type of building that you pick for your practice? 
All right. Yeah, this is a big topic. So I guess I, I think the first thing before I answer your question, I would say is that it's certainly not for everyone, <laughs> and it's okay. it's quite a it's quite a stressful endeavor, and 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 it's a big uh, life decision, and so you should go into it um, with a, a bit of trepidation and and a lot of thought, and so and it takes a long time, and there's a lot of effort that goes into it, and it's a lot of risk too, and so it's definitely not for everyone. Um, one of the biggest decisions. Once, once you've decided you want to do it, one of the biggest decisions is location, like like you mentioned. And so a lot of that is driven by your personal life, which I can't really advise on. But obviously, you want to be where you want to live. And so Manhattan's a different beast. Manhattan has so many different dermatologists. Um, and so for me, I just found a part of the city where there was less dermatologists. It seems pretty obvious, but that's what I did. And then I having having street level entrance and kind of street level brand awareness was important for me. Um, and so I, I went out of my way to make sure that I had um, an, a practice that you could walk on walk in off the street because I thought that that there was a lot of built in advertising associated with that. Certainly, there are parts of the country where, I mean, you could throw a dart at the map and just open a practice and you'd be fine. And so, like the suburbs of Dallas and Phoenix and places like that, there's Middle just so Montana. Many, <laughs> yeah, there's just so many, there's so much growth in these no, no, no state income tax type states. Um, and the demographics are so in your favor that you don't really need to be as diligent um, at finding a location, in my opinion, as you do in a Boston or a Manhattan or a San Francisco. And so I think a, a lot, so it's hard to give like sort of holistic um, advice for any location or any 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 market, I would say. But uh, the, the obvious things are obvious for a reason. Ob you know, try to find places with less dermatologists, do a search and look at the, the wait time in the area you're looking at or the areas you're looking at, go to ZocDoc and see how long of a wait they have and, and things like that. What are What is the payer mix in that area? You can look, do demographic searches, how many commercial insurance patients are in that area versus managed care and things like that. Yeah, no, I love what you said. Even in a saturated market, so to speak, like Manhattan, find a place that has less dermatologists in that city and that would be a great way to open up in a place like Manhattan or Boston or San Francisco. So that, that's certainly true. Um, did you consider taking over someone's practice or, or opening up a brand new space? I mean, is it a little easier to maybe take over someone's practice and then you're running it? I mean, I think there's a role for that. I mean, for my particular position, I, I'd grown up at Mount Sinai and I'd spent you know four years there seeing patients. And so I felt like I had a lot of patients that would find me. Um, I couldn't obviously solicit them for, for, for non-compete reasons, but I felt like they would find me. There's Google and things like that. And I had gotten my website up pretty early in the process. And so I didn't really see the value in going out of my way to purchase a practice for that reason. And, and, and when you do that, when you purchase a practice, you're kind of like, you're, you're, losing out on one of the, the biggest benefits to starting a practice, which is making it exactly how you want it. So you really only have one shot of like having a blank slate and, and deciding, you know, how big you want your rooms to be. And, and like, I don't have sinks in my patient rooms. Like that was a personal decision. I realized early on in medicine that these sinks are just a waste of space. Like I literally, I can't think of a single time I've washed my 
hands in a room. And so I just use hand sanitizer. And if I need the sink, I go to the lab space. And so, and then patients aren't using the sinks either. And so we just, when we built our construction, we just have no sinks in rooms. And so like, that's something that if you went, it's just one example of if, if you went to buy a practice, like you're not making that decision anymore, that that's there. So. Right. You, you can't customize. And as you said, one of the most beautiful things or the best thing about starting a practice and making it how you want and getting a new space, setting it up how you want, and that, that's the uh, ultimate benefit, ultimate goal of this. I know this could be a whole separate podcast, but can you give me a couple of tips or a couple of definitions or how you handled financing, loans, legal matters like LLC versus S-Corp, lawyers, contracts? I mean, how stressful was that? How'd you handle all that? Yeah. So there's a lot of different um, work streams that go on to starting a practice. And and what gets confusing and sometimes stressful about it is some of them, some of those, the timelines of those work streams depend on other work streams to like kind of move them forward. And so, um, you know, handling it, it was a lot of use of to-do lists and reminders and, and loss of sleep and things like that. But I think, um, I think the first thing you should do is make sure in your heart and in your gut and speaking with your loved ones that you want to do it. And then after you've done that, you know, pick the location. These are, these are the, you know, this is the swath of territory I would consider, or maybe there's two or three areas. And then uh, the next point would be to look at the leasing options versus purchasing options of the property and then see if it's even feasible for you to do at this point, like in terms of the, the money you have, right? Um, or, or your financing options of the banks. I mean, currently in the current macro environment, it's pretty tough to get business loans. And so I personally didn't take out a business loan. I did get, I did get financing for the mortgage for my property personally, but, but it's pretty hard to get small business loans to start a practice, which is historically not the case. I mean, physicians are considered very, very low risk investments. And so while you still could probably get financing to purchase a property, it's going to be hard to get um, small business loan financing without some sort of kind of personal guarantee behind it. Um, and, and so I guess the, it's it's just a helpful exercise to just you know do the property search and the 10 year lease option for purchase and just see if it's even feasible for you at this point in your life. Um, and, and let's assume it is then you kind of move forward with securing the property. And then once you know that that ball is rolling and like maybe you're purchasing the property and you have a 90 day close, once you have your address, that really unlocks a lot of the other work streams because you can't really start to credential when you don't have an address because credentialing is based on having an address. You can't really, you can't really incorporate until you have an address. I mean, I guess you could incorporate at your apartment and then change the address later, but that's sort of a pain. And so you kind of need that address, in my opinion, to unlock a lot of the stuff. And then, you know, your attorney you use to purchase the property or do your tenure lease and stuff, they can sort of insist, assist you in incorporating. Um, the credentialing is, is a separate work stream and you can either independently credential or in some markets we have what are called clinically integrated networks, which is basically you're a part of a hospital system and they credential for you. Um, that's big in New York City. Um, and then um, and then I'm trying to think what the other main pieces are. HR comes later. I don't think you need to do HR super early. Finding a practice manager relatively early is helpful, someone that you trust. Um, and then um, 
I'm trying to think what else. Um, what about like like leasing versus buying the equipment, right? Because you have these fancy rooms and then you go in the rooms and you need things like lights for examinations, lasers to do procedures. Um, what else? You know, cryotherapy vials. I mean, what do you buy? What do you lease? And how do you deal with all that? Because so I bought most of my stuff used. And so I think the only thing I leased in terms of actual durable equipment is my Apple products. And so my whole, my whole, my whole practice is Apple. Um, I use Emma as my EMR. And so I think we have at this point like eight iPads because we have like our kiosk iPads for patients to check in. And then my medical assistants have iPads. And then I have Mac stations, like five of them. And it's actually amazing how cheap it is. I mean, I think we pay like 500 bucks a month. And in three years, or 400 bucks a month or something. And, and, and then my social media person has an iPhone. And then in three years, they're just going to give us a bunch of new equipment. And so it didn't make sense to me to tie up like 20 or 30 grand in liquidity on computers that are just going to go bad when I could just hold on to that liquidity and kind of have these brand new devices that I get new ones every three years. And so I went the leasing route with my Apple products. Um, and I just never wanted a PC in my practice again. I mean, I just hate PCs and they're just like, they're slow. Other than that, I bought all my lasers and devices used, which brings down the cost a ton. Um, I think a lot of people waste a lot of money on brand new medical devices. The only brand new device I bought was an Elecor. And honestly, it was just because I thought it was so, so cool and I needed to have it and it just came out and this brand new device. And so I went out and bought that wasn't a super high ticket I had a ticket price for a brand new device but I'm excited about that one uh, patient beds are another high high price item uh, I bought all mine used with refurbished leather through a company called retrieve medical and so that brought down the price a lot um, and then I'm trying to think what the other big items are like the autoclave you gotta buy you should buy new um, office furniture but yeah that the prices start to go down a lot after that so yeah okay that's good to know yeah they, there's yeah. so many things you don't even think of like an autoclave which is obviously very important yeah uh, dr cameron what's the what's the biggest challenge in opening up a practice for you and what was the best part or the biggest perk would you say um, well, I think the biggest challenge is stress management. And so I don't even know, and time management. So I don't really know how someone could do this when having like kids, for example. So I have a, I have a partner, a girlfriend and, um, and we have a, a, a dog and like, honestly, like that was enough. Like it's hard. Like, I don't know, like leading up to the practice. And then now that I'm two weeks in, I'm two weeks in, I'm just starting to go home at a reasonable hour. But the first couple of weeks I was staying till 10 PM. And then it's just so much work setting everything up. Um, and so I think that time management and stress management is the hardest part. And unfortunately, in my opinion, if you're going to do it right and have a really, really well-run practice, your personal life is probably going to suffer a little bit at the beginning. Um, or you're just going to not be like, we're busy, like I'm booked. And so like, if I, if I wanted to only see 10 patients a day and then focus on the building the practice, I could, but then I would be losing money. And so like, if you want, if you're going to be busy and starting the practice, you're going to be, it's just a lot of, a lot of uh, time. So. Yeah. A lot of work, but a lot of rewards too, right? Totally. No, I don't, I don't regret doing it. It's incredible. Uh, but it's just not, it's not for everyone. I mean, I think, um, if you want a turnkey solution, you can still be very happy without owning your own practice and um, and do quite well still. So, 
Awesome, Dr. Cameron. I've got one more question for you, and I just want to get your thoughts on what's the future of the dermatology private practice, and what are some of the trends in the current marketplace uh, for dermatology private practice that you've seen? Yeah, so obviously it's changing a lot, and so private equity continues to be sort of the dominating force and dominating trend, and so there continues to be more and more consolidation, and so there's a very, very large private equity shops that employ physicians as well as a ton of physician extenders, MPs and PAs. Um, and, you know, that's going to continue to be the case. It's just the bottom line. The bigger are going to get bigger and, and there's going to be pros and cons to working for a practice like that. Um, and then um, I, I still think dermatology, and, and this is what's nice about dermatology. I mean, it's it's a specialty where you can still own your own practice and still do a small practice. And so I think it's getting harder and harder to do in other specialties. Uh, but dermatology is nice because it's just, it's sort of isolated from the hospital and you're not really dependent on the hospital for OR time or anything like that. Um, reimbursement is still decent, although it's sort of flat and, and, and there's always question. It seems unsustainable, honestly. And so I would not be shocked if in the five to 15 year range, we're just not taking insurance, honestly, or a lot of us aren't. Um, and so it's nice that in dermatology, you can lean on aesthetics as well as just self-pay. And we may get to the point where you just got to go self-pay and charge a set fee to see patients and then they can submit it to their insurance. A lot of more providers are doing that and, and then you can cut a ton of costs. So maybe maybe you're not seeing 40 or 50 patients a day through insurance. You're only seeing 20 or 30, but they're self-pay and then um, you can cut overhead. You don't need as much staff and things like that. And so I think that there's dermatology is always going to be okay, but, but there's going to continue to be challenges. And so that's sort of my thoughts on on the overall landscape. I mean, I, I in a perfect world, insurance will continue to be reasonable because I just want to take care of patients. I mean, I think that that is kind of why we all became physicians at the end of the day is we want to take care of patients and we want to use all these new therapies to improve patients' lives. And so I'm just hoping that on inflation-adjusted terms, insurance kind of continues to behave. So, Yeah, I agree. You know, I love dermatology. I love doing my job every day. But as dermatologists, we have to protect our field and fight hard, you know, for strong reimbursements, uh, for great care for our patients, for access to therapy, stuff like that. So, you know, just want to remind everyone, it's great to go home and have fun, go play golf, go out for dinner, but try to spend a little bit of time advocating for our field and our colleagues, because this is our life's work and we all love to do it. Uh, Dr. Cameron, actually one more question. And I know you practice in New York. You spend a lot of time in New York. I love New York as well. I lived there for many years. I was many years in Upper East Side, and then I was in Gramercy for a little bit. So I want to ask you, what's your favorite neighborhood in New York City and why? Oh, man, there's so many. That it's is a, a, it's tough a tough one. question. It's a tough question. Um, I, know. I think that I probably have to say where I live now, which is the Upper West Side. I think it doesn't get as much attention as it should. It's just such a nice, true local New Yorkers neighborhood. And, and it is. And, and we don't get too, too many tourists up here. We have nice, clean sidewalks. We have great tree-lined streets. We're very easy to get to Central Park, but it's also easy to shoot down to downtown, the West Village and all that stuff. And so I just find it to be a really lovely part of the city to live in. Yeah, I agree. Well, you're making me miss New York now, so I'll have to take a trip there soon. <laughs> I'll come by, check out your office. You know, we can chat, grab some Please dinner. Please do. So. You're welcome whenever. Just come by. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. You really helped me in the residence and we learned so much.